0: I don't have a scalable internet business. So your podcast, your guests that you interview resonates a lot more. And uh, You know, you interview them very well and uh, you're quite consistent. So, you know, I, when I'm going for a drive, that's what I listen to. Well,
1: yeah, like I said, I appreciate it. So you're in Dubai?
0: Yeah. So it's the capital of the UAE.
1: He actually was in the Middle East. Oh, wow. You know, I don't know if he invests at all, but at least he can definitely point you in the right way and understand the stuff that you have to deal with.
0: Yeah, oh, that'd be awesome.
1: Okay, yeah, I'll reach out to him. So I helped, finally. Yeah, just talking to you has uh, helped uh, help get my thinking going.
0: We've had people who've been in footwear for 40 plus years come up to us and say, you are the only real thing in footwear for the last 50 years. And they're not trying to blow smoke up our butts. I'll tell you the biggest mistake that I made though. Money, 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 money. And what we ended up developing is a rules-based, object-oriented, context-sensitive database that acts like a word processor because people did used to ask me this. When we were retired, they would say, what do you know about sort of money and success that we need to know? And the answer is. speaking
1: of experience, how about Shark Tank? How about
0: Shark Tank? Like at one point, I think Cuban said, wait a minute, you guys are married? And we said, yeah, but you said that she's the owner. It's like, yeah. What happened there? All right. I'm Stephen Sashen. I'm the CEO of Zero Shoes. That's X E R O Shoes. We're at zeroshoes.com, and we make addictively comfortable footwear that people use for everything from taking a walk to running ultra marathons. We make performance and casual shoes and sandals. We've been doing this since late November two thousand nine, and we are in Colorado in Broomfield, which is a little city in between Boulder and Denver.
1: In zero, so Y X E R O.
0: Oh, it looks cool as hell. Yeah,
1: it's a little bit different.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, we started out actually the name that I came up with on the day that I thought to start this project and I literally like thought it up on day one and launched a website on day one and I needed a name and I thought invisible shoes would be good because at the time we were just making it was a do-it-yourself sandal kit is what we were gonna sell. And the idea is it felt like you were wearing nothing, just a little layer of protection, and I came up with invisible shoes. At one point I met a guy who was the formerly the VP of marketing for a multi billion dollar fitness and what's what I'm looking for, active lifestyle and exercise product company. And he had heard about me. We got together and the first thing he said when we met is he looked at my feet and went, They're not invisible, you moron <laughs> so that's a good point. So we tried to find something else and to make a very long story very short, we came up with the idea. I like the idea of something that started the next because it just looked interesting. It caught your attention. And then I thought of zero and here we are. You talked about we you're talking about
1: another partner in the business or are you the sole partner?
0: My wife is our CFO and my co-founder, and I tend to use the royal, not the royal, we, I tend to use we because I think of the company as what we do, not
1: me. Right. Yeah. I think that's important to try to include everyone. But yeah. And also when you're getting started off, I know even when I had a one person company, I would say we all the time, just to make me sound bigger. You know.
0: (laughs) Even though the way it started, someone said to me, hey, this wacky hobby you have of making sandals for people, these barefoot-inspired sandals. If you had a website, I'd put you in a book that I have got a contract for about barefoot running. And I said, oh, and I've been an internet marketer since 1992, so I rushed home and pitched this idea to my wife who told me it was a really stupid idea and wouldn't work, waste of time, big distraction, don't do it. That night after she went to bed, I built a website And she kind of growled at me the next day and I said, look, the people that are ranking for the keywords that I care about, they're clearly there by accident. I think I can own this in a few months. And that's exactly what happened. So we ended up starting the business together, even though we literally never even had one conversation about starting the business together. It just kind of organically happened. And now here we are.
1: Since the people who are listening, they can't visually see. Can you paint a picture a little bit more of these sandals so they get a better idea of what's the difference between yours and maybe another pair? Sure.
0: Sure. So again, we do sandals and shoes, but they're all based on the same fundamental philosophy. And that is that your feet are supposed to bend and move and flex and feel. You have a quarter of the bones and joints of your entire body in your feet and ankles. You have more nerve endings in the soles of your feet than anywhere but your fingertips and your lips. So we make things that work the way feet work. So the toe box is the area where your toes are is wide enough so it doesn't squeeze your toes together. It lets them spread and relax and work naturally. We don't elevate your heel. We keep it flat or what's referred to as zero drop. So that your posture doesn't get messed up, we're really low to the ground. The soles of our shoes and sandals are anywhere between four and actually the thickest one is kind of ten millimeters thick, really. And ten millimeters is less than half an inch, but that's kind of a fake out because um, that's got a little more protection for trail running and things like that. But suffice it to say, most of them are super thin, like in the four to six millimeter range. They're really, really flexible. You can roll them up into a ball. They'll fit in your pack or your pocket. They're super lightweight. The soles have a rubber that we developed we call Feel True Rubber. It gives you a combination of just right protection depending on the activity you're engaged in, but it also lets your brain get the feedback that it needs from your feet to know how to work your entire body. And then there's just you know some interesting design elements that carry through on our shoes based on our original sandal design. The first product we came up with that we were selling was inspired by the tire sandals worn by the Tarumara Indians in Mexico. So they take a piece of tire. They cut it out to the shape of their foot. They strap to their foot with some leather lace and wrap it around their ankle and away they go. That was our original inspiration. So I don't know that that's probably not giving people enough info. Actually, there's two kinds of sandals. One that's super minimalist, that just has a little strap that goes from between your toes around your ankle and back to the top of your foot. And one that's more like Chaco or Teva or Keen. So what we call a sport sandal webbing goes across your foot instead of between your toes. And that's a more traditional looking style for the sandals. Hopefully that's helpful for people getting a picture.
1: Yeah, I think definitely so. And you're saying basically you started a company about nine years ago. Wow. Almost. Yeah. yeah I mean, you're November. getting old. I just know this because I'm looking at your LinkedIn. They have the date of <laughs> November 2009. <laughs> math for you. Yeah. But Did you start it for a reason? I mean, did you have a background in the shoe industry? What made you want to start this company?
0: No, no, literally, it was just because someone said, hey, if you took that hobby seriously and had a website and made it a business, I'd put you in a book. And at that point, what I had done, I came up with this idea of making these little simple minimalist sandals based on this 10,000-year-old idea or design. And I had found some rubber from some shoe repair places, found some string from Home Depot that I used to put them, scrap those onto your feet. I maybe helped people make, I don't know, 40 or 50 pairs. That's about it. And so it was just this interesting opportunity to build a cool website. And we thought it was going to be a car payment. We thought the revenue would be just a little supplemental something. But within about six weeks, we realized that that was not the case. This was going to be our full-time job we never frankly imagined we would be where we are today with a complete active lifestyle footwear line but the way it began was really just you know what the hell
1: can you tell us about your company size today or your like in revenues and employees
0: i can the information i'm going to give you is all public we did a reggae plus equity crowdfunding raise last year so i can only tell you the things that have been published on the sec website And that is last year, 2017, we did 5.53 million in sales, and we're projecting about 8.5, a little over 8.5 for the year, according to the documentation we filed with the SEC. And we are 30 people between our office in Broomfield and our warehouse in Denver. So
1: when you started off, did you ever dream that you'd have this many people
0: working for you? No, 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 no. We thought that if we did it right, we could run the entire company with maybe eight people tops. And the 30 people, those are just the ones that we have employed full time. There's another 11 that I work with on a very regular basis on the marketing side.
1: And you said reggae crowdfunding? Regulation A+.
0: Oh, okay. So I was like looking that up. <laughs> yeah, it would been nice if we could have done a little ska crowdfunding. That would have been cool. Is that a different type of platform that I haven't heard of? Well, I don't know if you've heard of it, but the gist is this: the Jobs Act was passed to allow non-accredited investors. Basically, an accredited investor is someone who has a net worth of over a million dollars, not including their home, and/or income of at least two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year. The SEC basically only allows those people, rich people, to invest directly in companies because they figure that they are smart enough and can afford the loss if things go badly. The Jobs Act allows anybody to invest. In a company that they believe in, if it's done in certain ways. And so the Regulation A version, among other things, allowed us to raise over a million dollars from people in all 50 states. Typically, this is done through a registered broker dealer or through a platform that has a registered broker dealer that they work with. We were the first company to figure out how to really go direct. People were investing directly with us, not going through a broker dealer. We figured out how to take investor or get money from investors in all 50 states, which no one had ever done before. We've since taught people how to do that. and Now it's become quite common since people know. So it allowed us to have our customers and people who soon became customers invest directly in a company they believe in. It's made people literally invested in the success of our brand.
1: And how do you do that as far as like doing a crowdfunding with Reggae?
0: Oh, gosh. Well, again, it's sort of a marketing play or like anything, it's just kind of getting the word out, but it's a marketing play. So when we set everything up, we used a platform to do that. It's essentially a giant shopping cart that's designed specifically for the requirements of crowdfunding, which means there's documentation you actually have to sign. It's not just paying with a credit card. In fact, you can't pay with a credit card. You have to pay with real money. So checking account or direct deposit in some way. Then I emailed my list, which was at the time, I think maybe only about 70,000 people at the time we ran ads on the internet as well just to let people know they had a chance to invest in a rapidly growing footwear brand and just spread the word in every way we could think of.
1: And what platform did you use? We used a program called CrowdEngine. Okay, because I knew there's quite a few. So I didn't know if you were doing this without any type of online presence or what. That would seem very difficult.
0: No, in fact, you can still see a version of the page that we use to promote the raise at invest.zeroshoes.com. It's still up there just to show people what we were doing.
1: And this invest and then the X-E-R-O shoes.com. Invest.
0: Yep. X-E-R-O shoes, plural.com.
1: Okay, cool. Well, uh, thank you for giving us a quick rundown of the company. If you don't mind, how about we jump back to, I was looking, you went to Duke University? Oh man,
0: we're going back in time. I (laughs) did.
1: So tell us about that experience, like (laughs) where you were before that and what brought you to do that and kind of climb the ladder to where you are today.
0: Oh, I don't know about a ladder, but somehow I got here through the crazy whatever path that we all take in our lives that seems to somehow make sense in hindsight, but rarely does in reality. So I grew up outside of DC and when it was time to go to college, I basically thought I want to go to the best school that I can think of that's warmer than where I am right now. So I went down and took a look at Duke and went, Ooh, I like it here. And I applied and for whatever reason they let me in. And it's an interesting question. I was actually not very happy there, not because of any issue with Duke. I just wasn't happy in an academic environment or something. I don't know what it was. I spent my summers as a performer. I was doing magic and comedy. I was a street performer. I worked at Bush Gardens in Williamsburg, Virginia, the amusement park out there doing my own show. So there was just something about, I don't know how to describe it. I just wasn't happy being in a little cloistered environment. I did actually a lot of performing when I was in school. So I spent a lot of time in Durham and in Raleigh and just outside of the academic environment. And I really liked that. So I graduated early. I just had to get the hell out of Dodge and, and ended up going from Duke into stand-up comedy which the thing that I did, I know that seemed like a big jump, but a comedy club opened when I was in school. I went down there and auditioned and they let me kind of MC and be the host for most of their shows. The guy who booked that room said, hey, when you graduate college, I can get you a 10 weeks worth of work on the road. And I went, I'm out of here. So I graduated early. That 10 weeks turned into 10 months. Then I ended up moving to Manhattan and being a professional stand-up comic for the next 10 years.
1: Wow. That's what you did. For the first 10 years out of college?
0: Yeah. And then about halfway through that, I was getting bored during the day. And so I, again, making long stories very short, ended up applying to Columbia University for their graduate film program. And again, for some crazy reason, they let me in. And so I ended up with a master's in film from Columbia. And I was still doing stand-up at the time. I was also acting and doing voiceover work and things like that. I had a performing life and my graduate school life, writing screenplays and directing movies, and that takes us to about 1990-ish, that's when I graduated, and in that same period of time, when I was writing screenplays, I hated the software that existed for putting scripts in the very peculiar and ridiculous format that they're required to be in, and I somehow came up with an idea for how to do it better and found a computer programmer to a software engineer who could help me turn this into a thing. And I ended up starting a company that made it, still makes actually, a product called Scriptware, which became the industry standard word processing software for film and television writers. We're actually trying to relaunch that just because it hasn't been touched since about 1998, but people are still using it. And so we thought it's time for a revamp.
1: So you may have heard that there are other entrepreneur groups out there that can help you feel a little less lonely. Ones like EO, Vistage, or YPO. But why join any of those when you can get all those benefits at a fraction of the price? How? Well, join our Patreon membership. You've heard from some of our members how much of a steal our Patreon membership is. So here's some cold, hard numbers for you. In year one with EO, you're going to spend $4,900. For Vistage, you're paying $18,810 for your first year. And for YPO, you're shoveling out $7,050 for your very first year. For our gold Patreon membership, you're getting it at less than $30 a month. Let that sink in. Again, our gold membership is less than $30 a month compared to those other guys that cost $4,900, $18,810 and $7,050. So if you're on the fence, join today before I act like a smart businessman and I raise prices. Just go to millionaire-interviews.com forward slash Patreon. Why was the script where like you're saying how it's different from maybe using a regular word processor? Can you tell us the differences?
0: Yeah, I'll I'll do it as briefly as I can. So scripts have some very peculiar formatting rules that you can do some of them with a handful of macros and key commands to change the margins, change the spacing, change the capitalization rules. But then there's some things that it does that you can't really easily do at all with a word processor. So, for example, if you have a character speaking and their dialogue is going to break across a page, you have to break it only after a certain number of lines. It has to break at the end of a sentence. And then at the top of the next page, you have to put the character name again, followed by the word continued. And if you then edit this script to make it shorter, longer change where the page break might fall within the dialogue, you have to adjust it automatically on the fly and adjust it somehow. And there is no way with the standard word processor to do that automatically in real time. There's other formatting rules and constraints that you just can't do properly with the standard word processor. So what I invented, not intentionally, Because I know nothing about computer programming, but I understand how I basically discovered a pattern that if you were typing on a typewriter, and the different elements that you were writing were smart, and they knew how they related to other elements, and those elements knew how they related to a page, then it seemed like there would be some way for all this stuff to happen automatically on the fly. What you see is what you get, with nothing other than tab and enter, just like you would be using on a typewriter, but less frequently. And what we ended up developing is a rules-based, object-oriented, context-sensitive database that acts like a word processor. The demonstration of the value of that is that in the 20-something years since I came up with this idea, there have been dozens and dozens of screenwriting software applications that have come out trying to replicate what I've done, and none of them have ever been able to.
1: This was kind of your first step into
0: entrepreneurship, right? In a way, I mean, I made a living from the time I was 12 till whenever as a performer. Again, I started doing magic. I was doing kids' birthday parties. I was a street performer. So I've never had a job. <laughs> I always found a way to do something that made me money by doing what I wanted it to do. Never occurred to me to try to interview for something or look for a gig somewhere else.
1: Yeah, even the stand-up comedy, I mean, it's not a nine to five job, so you're still kind of working for yourself at that point, but formally, if you will.
0: It was the first business I started, yeah.
1: Yeah, tell us what you learned from doing that.
0: Oh man, well, when I started the company, I started it with what I call the five dangerous entrepreneurial words. How hard could this be? I'll tell you the biggest mistake that I made though, is that, I don't want to put this, I've been an individual sport athlete my whole life. So I started out as a diver, I was a gymnast, I'm a runner, and I run sprints. So everything I've done has been based on my success or failure being up to me. And so I didn't realize that this was part of my psychology, but my basic outlook on life is the best thing, whether it's a person or a thing, the best thing should win. And what I didn't realize is that other people play with those same rules. So with my software company, I had one of my competitors basically come up to the one company that was responsible for most of our sales and say, what do we need to do in order for you to stop selling Sassion's program? And they had an answer. And so it never occurred to me to basically do underhanded things to try to manipulate reality rather than just best man wins. And that cost me a lot of money. That's why the program has been sort of sitting on the shelf, if you will, for the last, holy crap, that's 20 years. It's something that I still think about in the footwear industry. I'm aware of the fact that our competition is not gonna take lightly what we do as we improve, as our sales improve, as our reach improves, as our awareness improves. But I have to literally almost remind myself of that on a daily basis and try to think of things that I would never think of naturally and figure out how to address those hopefully before they occur or be ready for them when and if they do occur.
1: I think that's a real kick in the gut to like anyone who's first starting off their business. They might think that everyone's like behind them, even there to help even as family and friends. But what I've found out, even when I was doing sales brokerage, like even the guy I worked with, like he was happy for me at first. But then once I closed that sale, then he You know, it's like, oh, he kind of wanted a piece of it. And you're like, I thought everyone's like there to congratulate you and help you out. But it's kind of rough reality. You thought everyone would be happy for you. But no, even if it's not the competition.
0: Yeah. In our company now, it's sort of a weird thing. Lane and I think of everything non-hierarchically. I don't think of myself as more or less important than the people in the warehouse getting packages out the door. And we try to run the company that way. As soon as you get over, I think, maybe four people, suddenly politics shows up and competition shows up and all those people's psychology shows up. And I understand that. And at the same time, I'll say that I find it confusing because it's just not the way my brain works. But I get that that's what happens out there. It's an interesting challenge to understand one's own psychology enough to see how it does interface with what's happening with other people and your business and your customers and everything else that you can think of and not assume that the way you think is correct.
1: So at the time with where I guess kind of jumping back to when you started it, you're in New York still at the time?
0: Yeah, I started it in New York. And what happened was once it, it got going, I realized I didn't need to be in New York. I was no longer relying on performing for my full-time income and I could leave, <laughs> which is kind of a crazy thought. When Most New Yorkers, you just never think about leaving. You don't think that it's possible. Why would you go anywhere else? But once I realized I could, it was just like, hmm. and I'd never been to Colorado before, but I knew about it which is a weird thing to say. So I came out here and checked it out for a week. And for the first five days I was going, eh, I don't think this is for me. And on day six, I woke up and went, you know, I really like it here. My joke is, especially moving to Boulder, my joke is that I said, I thought there would be like-minded people when I moved out here. And I didn't realize that I would come to not like their minds. Yeah, yeah understood. <clears throat> you know, it's a little airy-fairy, new agey for me. I was that 25 years ago when I moved here. <laughs> but my thinking has changed.
1: So how old were you at the time and what year was this?
0: 93 ish. So I would have been 31.
1: Did you like have saved up or were you like generating from your software
0: company? So we get an idea financially where you were. That's a good question. I don't remember to be honest. Saved up, that's an interesting thought. I don't think I've, I'm not aware of having saved up much money in the last 30 years. <laughs> I always made enough to do what I was looking to do. I don't remember if I'd had some money invested when I, this is going to sound funny. I think I had the most money invested when I was doing stand-up comedy. So I remember having, God, this is back again in early 90s, I had 20-something thousand dollars in a mutual fund, or in a couple of mutual funds, and I used that to get Script queer started. But after that, I have no memory of how much money I ever had anywhere. I don't think I was investing it anywhere. I think it was all just going back into whatever I was doing to grow the business.
1: I didn't know if you decided to save up so much and then you're like, okay, I have enough money. I can move. Well, I guess it, no matter what, it's going to be cheaper than living in New York.
0: No, I just packed up and moved. Yeah.
1: So you had no friends or anything when you were moving out there? <laughs> no,
0: I knew one person. In fact, it was really funny. When I said to my parents that I was thinking of moving to Boulder, my dad said, I have a really good friend that I grew up with in Redding, Pennsylvania, whose kids who were my age and by kids, he meant son and his person's son's wife wife Boulder. And I said, Oh, that's cool. It'd be great to meet them. And I don't remember how it happened. I think somehow I got the word came back to me that I could give these people a call and that they had said that I could stay with them when I came out to Boulder to check it out. So I called them and said, Hey, you know, your dad gave me your number. He said, I could stay with you when I came out there. And they said, Oh, we don't know anything about that, but sure. It's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> like, What? So they were the only people I knew and they became some of my closest friends quite happily.
1: And did you have the entrepreneurial mindset at the time when you're moving out there as well?
0: I was running scriptware at the time. And in running scriptware, again, this is 93-ish, 93 into 94, I was discovering the internet. Well, I wasn't discovering the internet. I knew about the internet before. I had been one of those early adopters for online things. I was... Oh, gosh. I had an early AOL account. I had a GeoCities account. I was on CompuServe. I was doing IRC things. I was part of Echo in New York. If people don't know, Echo was a bulletin board system. The analog to that was the well out in San Francisco. So I was getting into internet marketing and understanding internet marketing and doing some little side projects just to have some fun with that. So I don't think I've ever not done entrepreneurial-ish things. I just never really thought about it very much.
1: But was your software company like taking up most of your time while you're still moving out there? Yeah. Yeah, What was that work life like when you didn't know anyone? I don't know if you still have a developer back in New York or what?
0: (laughs) It was really easy. In fact, I think about this part of my life quite nostalgically. Because I didn't know anybody, I would roll out of bed. I would have a little bite to eat. I would get to work. And get to work meant answering emails and tech support phone calls figuring out how to market the product and where to advertise and just whatever I could think of to get the word out there. I would finish at seven o'clock at night. I would have some more to eat and I would go for a walk or jump in the creek, depending on what season it was. The creek was right outside my condo that I was living in. I would look in the paper and see if there was a movie playing or something happening on campus at the University of Colorado, or just something to do. I would come home. It would be about nine o'clock. And I would turn on the TV and see if it was an episode of Star Trek that I had already seen or not. And if I hadn't seen it, I would watch it and then go to bed. And if I had seen it, I would go to bed. That was it. And then lather, rinse, and repeat. It was a very monastic life, but it was actually really enjoyable. It was very spacious.
1: So how long did you do this for?
0: <laughs> I think I did, until I met a woman who then became my fiance. That lasted for, I think that's actually true. So that lasted for a year and a half like that. And then as I started meeting people and developing a social life, it evolved somewhat, but not a whole lot. What happened actually a couple years in, maybe two years in, there was an article about me in the newspaper and some guy came and pounded on my door and begged to work for me. And I said, I don't think I have enough work for you and I don't have enough money to pay you. And I had somehow either hired or met a coach, a business coach. I don't remember how that happened. But I just remember saying, you know, this guy keeps pounding on my door, but I don't have enough money for him. And the coach said, look, hire the guy. He wants to work for you that badly. Hire him. He will pay for himself. I assure you. And in fact, that was the case. I brought him on and, you know, away it went. At one point he says to me, you know, we really need to get an office. I said, why? We're sitting here in a two bedroom condo. The second bedroom is our office. We're fine. It's just you and me. And he said, yeah, but I'm kind of sick of you working in your underwear. <laughs> right. So well, um,
1: at least you had underwear on, right? <laughs>
0: It was a rare day. We found an office in downtown Boulder. It was like 1,200 square feet. and It was the two of us. It was ridiculous. We were at opposite ends of the office, just kind of yelling at each other and thought it was hysterical. But within a year, it was full. There was 12 people in there and we were packed. And the business grew, not huge. It turned into about 800, 900 grand a year before things turned. Partly it turned because I was looking to sell the company and the people who were looking to buy it kind of took it over. And then it turned out that how do I want to put it? There were three partners in that company, and it turned out that one of them was stealing from the other two, and everything fell apart.
1: Oh, yeah. That made a long story short. Yeah. But how about when you moved down there and you said within a year you had that many people working for you? I think this is a big transition because I think enough people can get the, I don't know, they're encouraged enough that, hey, I can start the business. But then, like you said, you were scared to hire this guy. You didn't think you had the money, but you still did it. And like, what did he bring to the table, and how were you able to grow? Because that's a big jump from one to two to 10.
0: Well, The how was just out of necessity, and that's the way it has been here too. It's like we needed more people doing tech support. We needed more people doing various kinds of sales. We needed programmers to develop into the program. It was just we needed those things. What he did, he really was focusing on sales, direct sales. So I was focusing on product development and marketing. He eventually, and very quickly, essentially really managing the entire office. He was hiring, firing, so he was doing HR. He was boy, almost everything I can think of. I mean, the guy really took it on. And is a guy named Mark Walker. I'll put out a shout out to this wonderful guy. Mark at one point said to me, you need to take a vacation. I said, I don't think so. He goes, you need to get the hell out of here. (laughs) And so I went and did a 10-day meditation course. And I was terrified because during that 10 days, I didn't have access to a phone. I had no computer, nothing. And I was terribly afraid that when I came back, the universe will have exploded. And when I came back, everything was working better than when I left. I just really lucked out that this guy was super smart, super talented, and really wanted to manage something and be responsible for it. Then I let him do that and I just did the parts that I was really good at, which was the bigger picture pieces and the product marketing stuff, which is still what I do.
1: It must have been a hell of an article that they wrote about you, huh?
0: Yeah, I guess.
1: For him to get so excited and jacked up, you know, it's like, like you were saying the business coach obviously was right if someone wants to work for you that much.
0: Well, you know, it's funny. It's now one of our hiring practices. We say to people and we tell them during interviews, we go, look, we only want you here if you really, really want to be here. And by really wanting to be here, I mean pounding down the door, begging to work here. And I'm not being metaphorical when I say that. You've got to prove to us that you want to be here. I thought originally when I said that, and I said it because I'm not good at keeping secrets, but when I first said it to someone, I thought it would poison the well and they would just fake it and pound on the door. But that's never happened. People who want to be here, they prove it. And people who don't, they don't.
1: So you fast forwarded quickly that you ended up selling the company to three different partners.
0: No, that sale went through after I found out that one of them was embezzling.
1: Oh, so tell us a little bit more about that, because maybe just to reemphasize what happened. Really? Can
0: I just shoot myself? In the <laughs>
1: <crazy>? <laughs> Make sure the people listening hopefully don't <laughs> end up having the same issue, right?
0: Yeah, it's pretty simple. Um,
1: <laughs> don't steal.
0: Uh, it is actually. I'll say it this way. I had gotten bored. There wasn't really much for me to do. We had a system that was working. The business was growing. We didn't have to do a lot of product development because there just wasn't a whole lot to do. We were the industry standard and no one could touch us. And I don't want to describe it. That of course, that bit I mentioned with my one competitor coming in and kind of pulling the rug out from underneath us, it just seemed like it was the right time to get out. The person that I was looking to sell to was someone who I had met, I don't even remember how, was also a business consultant. And he just known us since practically day one and wanted to come on board and take it on. In fact, he had this idea that he was going to go raise a few million dollars and just get a handful of programmers and let me tell them what I thought should be the next project we should work on. I had a bunch of software ideas at the time. And so again, the whole thing just kind of fell apart. And the lesson, if there is one, is I guess knowing further, well, other than the competitive one, other than knowing how to really try to be on top of what the competition is doing and react accordingly. I mean, I think I was just kind of lazy. Actually, you know what? I just remember this. After that all happened, what I discovered is that we could put in less and less effort with fewer and fewer people and sales stayed really flat for like three years. So it was just a trimming process where everything kept working. But then things started to fall apart after that. But that's when they were coming on board. And I guess my mistake was that I wasn't really diligent about the process of transferring the company and, of course, getting paid. And I just wanted to get out. So I wasn't putting my attention on it. I don't know if there's something you can learn from that. It was just a phase that I went through. And that's what happened as a result of it. So... I mean, do it that way you will.
1: When was it first brought up to you? I'm sure you can remember like it was yesterday, like when you found out that he was stealing and how he was stealing.
0: Oh, <laughs> yeah. It was a piece of cake. <laughs> I had basically sent the entire company out there. In other words, I had sent all of my computers that we were using to run the company out there. They were running things on a day-to-day basis. The idea was, let us get up to speed while we're putting this deal together. And then when the deal goes, you know, we're ready to fly. I said, sounds good to me. So I sent everything out there.
1: And where's out there? Uh, California. Okay, that's where the guys who were going to buy it, okay.
0: One of the guys came up with the idea that one of the ways of making more money was going to be to mine our email list or mine our database of customers. I also sent out all of our phones, and all of our phones were VOIP phones. This is an important part of the story. So at one point he says, I don't think your list is really worth anything because I made some number of calls. I can't remember the number. And I just got no response. And I said, how many calls did you say you made? And he gave me a number. I said, and when did you say you did that? And he gave me a time. I said, well, I've got two problems with what you just said. The first is, the math is that you would have been making a new phone call every seven seconds. So that's not possible. But more importantly, these are VOIP phones, and I have access to the account. And you said you were using the office phone to do this, and I see no outbound calls during that time that you said you were making those calls. And there's a long silence. And then he starts yelling at me, are you calling me a liar? Who do you think you are? There was a lot of, who do you think you are? During the next pause, I said, you know, righteous indignation like that is usually a sign of guilt. And he screams and yells and hangs up the phone. The other two partners were on the phone. They went, yeah we're gonna to have to get back to you <laughs> <laughs> and, and a week later they called and said yeah we just found out that he's been embezzling
1: so he was friends with the other two partners I guess they were part of a company and that they
0: it was three of them I don't remember what their relationship was to be honest
1: you had to send all your computers out there for them to take a look at it
0: yeah the answer to your question is that we were for all practical purposes an internet company so since all we were doing was selling well advertising online or in writer's digest magazine and doing tech support the entire company was just like four computers and a phone
1: yeah and how about going from you thought you're going to sell it so i think mentally you're in a different mind state right you even kind of mentioned that but yeah then coming back to the mindset of oh never mind i'm not going to sell it and now i've got to jump back in
0: yeah that was not fun but it's taken the better part of the last 18 years what's happened is that I decided, okay, well, if I'm going to have to take it back, what I should do is prepare the product and the company to be sold again. And the product just needed an update and to make a very long story, very short, which seems to be the theme of our conversation. The program is very complicated because it looks really simple on the outside. People misunderstand how complex it actually is. And I hired numerous people to go in and clean up the original code, partly because the original programmer was on doing other things and was just not returning my phone calls and had no interest in diving back in there. I ended up spending a couple hundred thousand dollars to get the code redone, and everyone who touched it made it worse. It was a nightmare. And so literally as we speak, I have someone who's in there now, working on the code, and we're, getting to the point where the engine is doing everything correctly with a whole new front end and able to work on every platform that we can make it work on. And as soon as the engine is working, as soon as you can type and copy and paste and it paginates correctly, we're going to try and raise a couple of dollars from some very famous writers who use our program and have been using it nonstop for almost 30 years and finish it and then relaunch, do a big launch, make back the money that. I went into debt to cover from all the development stuff and then see where it goes from there.
1: So what percentage of time do you say you're using on the software company versus Zero Shoes? Oh,
0: hour a day. Uh, sorry, hour a week. Yeah. Reminds me of when we were just getting it started. So I came up with the idea in 1989. It didn't launch till 1992 because it was that complicated. And it's a similar life because what would happen is once or twice a week, my programmer would send me something then on a 2400 baud modem. and uh, And it would take me an hour to download the 240K file. And he'd send me something, I'd test it, I'd give him notes, and we just go back and forth. So we're kind of in that same phase right now, so there's really not much for me to do until, again, I've got something that's functioning correctly, then it gets fun. I belong to this international organization, and you get once a month
1: meeting, we all get together, and I've gotten frustrated because I go in there, and everybody's just kind of scooting over the top of everything, and we're sitting there nodding our heads like we know what they're talking about. There's no details to it. For me, it's $700 a month and it's hard to justify, you know, Uh, honestly, I feel like that I've got 10 times more out of listening to your meetings. (laughs) Why don't we talk about when you made the transition to doing zero shoes then? What year are we talking about and when did you decide to make the transition and just tell us about that mindset?
0: You're overplaying it to say that I made the decision. <laughs> it really just kind of fell in my lap. The way I described it before, again, someone said I'd put you in a book. I said I built 500 websites at that time, so I just went and built another, and it just took off by accident. We literally thought this will maybe be a car payment, and then it turned into our full-time gig. And then seven months after that, we had some guys who had all started at Reebok when it was a, less than a tenth of the size that we are now. And they sat down with us and said, we think you're onto something for real, and we'd like to help. And they did some design work for us. They introduced us to some sourcing manufacturing people in Asia. They were just really, really helpful across the board. And it was organic and certainly not planned in any way whatsoever. But in that window of time between roughly 2000 and 2009, Lane and I were retired for all practical purposes. Scriptware was kind of hobbling along. It wasn't going to go anywhere, and I was trying to get it recoded but we had done some clever real estate investing back in 99 and 2000. That was paying the rent. So we really didn't have anything that we had to do. And it was awesome. I highly recommend early retirement. It's a great gig. At the same time though, I basically wasn't working during my, what are technically one's usual most productive years. I was chilling out and it was great. But nonetheless, you know, sort of set me back in a way. And then again, zero just happened, fell in our lap and we've been going for the ride.
1: Well, you could say that, but I mean, if you earned it and you were smart about doing it, then in love with your means during
0: that time, then I think everyone would want to do that, right? Well, the conversation went like this. We had been doing some real estate investing. I owned a condo in Boulder. We wanted to move out of the condo and into something a little bigger than a two-bedroom space because Lena wanted her, her own office and I needed an office. And we suddenly had the realization, this is in 2000, not 2000, 2001. We had the realization that the market looked like it was probably going to top. I don't know how we came to that conclusion, but it just seemed to us like there was something going on. We sold the condo, made a bunch of money from having done that. Here's what the conversation went like. We could take the money that we just made, use it as a down payment for a house and still be paying $2,500, $300, $3,000 a month for a mortgage. Or we could invest that money in the real estate stuff that we've been doing. And that'll then kick off enough cash that we can rent something for free and probably have enough money left over where we really don't have to work if we live comfortably, casually, easily, not extravagantly. And by the time I got to the end of the sentence, we had clearly decided that's what we were going to do.
1: Yeah. So how much money were you like generating when you're saying just living comfortably during those years?
0: That's a good question. Probably somewhere around 120 a year. And we were then donating between 10 and 20 of that to charities because we liked donating to things and we didn't need the cash.
1: Yeah, and I think it's important because it doesn't take nearly as much money as people think to live that type of lifestyle, right? Where you're semi-retired, it's about being smart about your finances at the same time.
0: You have to know what the word enough means. Right. And it takes a while to kind of get that, to pay attention to that in such a way that you can do it. I mean, we were living in Boulder. Had we been living somewhere less expensive, we could have had the same lifestyle at half the price. But I still think I have a down payment on some lettuce at the farmer's market so it's kind of crazy out here. But early on in about 2000, I met a guy who had started and sold two shoe companies and ended up, he made like $150 million from having done that. I said to him, what was the most unusual thing about realizing you were off the financial grid? And he said, I spent two years in just really working on my psychology until it was 100% crystal clear to me that I never needed to do anything ever again. And that was a really inspirational bit of information for me, because basically came to the same conclusion on a fraction of the amount of money. And people would call me and say, hey, if you only work for an extra two hours a day, you could make an extra $10,000 a month. And I'd say, yeah, I don't need it. We have enough. And the gap between doing a little every day and doing nothing every day is infinitely large. So we just really got clear about what made us happy what didn't make us happy we took three or four long vacations every year and went and hung out with people that we loved that didn't cost us very much because we would stay with them and we had a really fine lifestyle getting very clear about what enough meant
1: i think that's again really important that it seemed like you always kind of had that mindset though right you needed more things because i think some people get feel like that's going to help them feel better but really after buying it it really does nothing right
0: well, you know, everyone has their things that they, let's say, waste money on that you spend money on thinking it's going to be great. And it rarely is. You know, my thing was books and fitness gadgets, and I don't spend a lot of money. It's not my thing. Yeah,
1: no, understandable. I'm allergic to it as well.
0: <laughs> no. You know, that said, anyone who says money can't buy happiness has never driven my car. So I'm not allergic to it. I don't not do it. But I don't really think that more stuff is an answer for me. My house has always been very Zen-like and relatively empty.
1: Back to zero shoes, when you're talking about like growing it, even those first couple of years, even though you had done your own business before, this is a totally different type of business where I guess you have to think of manufacturing, actually creating, you know, a physical product. How about just walking us through the difficulties and the ups and downs through those first couple of years?
0: You pretty much just nailed it making things as hard, making footwear is even harder. It's the guys who I mentioned who all started at Reebok 40 years earlier. They said to us, we would start this business with you because we really believe in what you're doing, but we've been in footwear so long that we're not stupid enough to start a shoe company. Lane and I said, yeah, we know we're optimistic and naive, but that's the only way anything ever gets done. So away we go. And it's really, really hard. So the first time we made our own outsoles for our do-it-yourself sandal kit, they came back from the factory. And you would think that a larger piece of rubber would weigh more than a smaller piece of rubber, but somehow it didn't. You would think that the left and the right would basically weigh the same and have the same flexibility and durability and abrasion resistance, but somehow they didn't. And it was really unpleasant. And we complained to the factory and they said, well, how much is it costing you just to deal with it? And we said, I don't know, like $5,000 this year, which was a lot of money for us. And they said, well, it's going to cost $50,000 to fix it okay, that's a hard one lesson about having to deal with reality rather than getting exactly what you want. So that was a big challenge. The bigger challenges are the obvious ones that happen to any businesses growing as quickly as ours. And that was finding people to help and finding the money to support the growth. When you're growing at 50 to 100% a year, you're piling most of your money back into next year's inventory, then find the money to do other things beyond that was challenging. And we've been very, very lucky. We met some people socially who liked what we were doing, got along with us and gave us a what was then a very small line of credit that has evolved into a much larger line of credit. Years later on, we met someone who helped us prove that hell has frozen over by helping us get an SBA loan. So finance has been, I think, perhaps the biggest challenge and then finding enough people who can help us manage the growth that we're currently dealing with.
1: Yeah, but how about the like, work-life change? It would seem like, because before you semi-retired, right? I mean, then what were your hours like after that?
0: I roll out of bed somewhere between <laughs> six and seven. I roll onto the computer. Actually, I roll into the bathroom. Then I roll onto the computer. And then for a while, we were working out of our house. And so I would be downstairs in my underwear again. And, uh, uh, Deja vu. Yeah, well, you know, actually, the first couple of years, it was a nice little lifestyle business. In fact, at one point, maybe a couple of years in, like two and a half years in, I remember saying to Lena, wouldn't it be cool to have a little internet-based business only took a few hours a day and made a couple hundred grand a year. She goes, that's what we have. I went, "Yep, too bad I can't stay that way. We're too vulnerable if we are a mom and pop shop. We've got to decide, are we in or are we out? And we decided, you know, we're in. And so the change in lifestyle just evolved slowly over the next three years. After about three years, it was full-time seven days a week.
1: Did your employee complain about you working in your underwear again? I
0: don't think he did.
1: About meeting your wife.
0: Oh, that one? Oh yeah. <laughs> no, um, her complaint was really, at one point, we had a customer service guy at our dining room table. We had a fulfillment guy who was just filling up the entire living room. All of our inventory was in every spare inch that we could find. Lena had an office in a spare bedroom. I had an office in the basement. I mean, we'd filled the house with the office. And she said, I just got to get you people out of here. And again, you know, we've got to get an office, but not because I was in my underwear. It's just that she wanted to have a life separate from work. And that's when we got our office. And then we moved into this place. The moment we moved in, it was already too small. And that's happened repeatedly.
1: And it seems like you made a good point earlier that you kind of couldn't half-ass like your product business here because it's not like a certain online business, maybe like your software where you can make it a lifestyle. It's either you have to go full blast or you really can't, it seems like.
0: I've met a lot of people who read the four hour work week (laughs) and thought about creating a lifestyle business and you can do that totally doable. Every one of them that I know who's done that has gotten to a point where they realize that if they really want it to be more than just a little lifestyle business, they've got to treat it like a business. The number of people who've been able to do sort of four hour work week level stuff is very, very small, is under very unusual circumstances. It's called lifestyle business for a reason. We're old enough that we realized that for us, we're on the entrepreneurial retirement program. So if we had a lifestyle business, that's cool, but then we would have to do it for the rest of our life. And instead, we wanted to build something that maybe someday would be acquired or in some way would give us a liquidity event because we didn't have anything saved up would cover us.
1: When you're making the change, when you moved into the place that was a little bit too small, you said the hardest part was finding money and people. So how were you able to do that
0: over that time? You think we've done it?
1: I don't know. I I assume so. If you hired, what, 30 plus people, right?
0: It's a never ending problem. We still need more than what we have. We're hiring on a seemingly weekly basis, sometimes in part because we need new people, sometimes because people leave. So we had an employee with us for a number of years who was an integral part of the company and her husband just got an offer for a job they couldn't say no to. And so we've got to replace her. So there's this ebb and flow of hiring, and when it comes to cash, we're still literally working on that every day. It looks like we're about to get a significant loan from a major national bank, and that's going to be really helpful, but it's not enough, and it would have been enough if the deal had closed six months ago like we thought it was going to, would have held us for now, but again, we've grown to the point where it's not enough, and we're working with that bank to see if we can find additional capital. We're talking to potential investors as well. Again, we did that equity crowdfunding raise, we're deciding whether we'd wanna do another one of those. So if you look at rapidly growing companies, capital is always an issue and people are always trying to find more.
1: So was it worth coming out
0: of retirement? That's a great question. We didn't really have a choice actually. What happened was, again, we had been doing that was throwing off the cash that we needed, was investing in real estate in various ways. In 2006, when our last friend said, hey, I'm getting into real estate investing, We went, oh, crap, this is 1999 in the stock market all over again. So I called our partner, who we were working with on this, and said, we got to start selling. Everything's going to fall apart. I just know it. (laughs) And he said, funny you should say that. I can't find any good deals anymore because people have figured out what we've been doing, but they don't know how to price it correctly. So we started selling everything. By mid-2009, we were rapidly running out of cash. And the fact that this whole thing fell into our lap was quite auspicious because we were getting to the point where I said to Lena, look, I know how to sell things online. I know I can find a product and we can make money. It won't be something that I want to do. It won't be something that I like, but it'll be something that I need to do. So I'll do it. And this is going to sound crazy, but we were maybe a month away from getting to that point when this all started. So really, really lucked out. We didn't have a choice coming out of retirement. And is it worth it? I don't have a way of answering that question. Even if we ended up with some huge amount of money, I wouldn't frame the time that it took to get there in the context of worth it or not worth it. The thing that's worth it for us is that we're doing something that's real. The products that we make change people's lives. When you let your feet bend and move and flex and work naturally, it can literally change your life. And the emails that we get every day from people who say that, that's what keeps us going the idea that we can change the world. you know, Modern footwear, athletic footwear, there is zero evidence, and by zero, I mean none, that it improves performance and reduces injury. I don't believe that anecdote is the same as data, but when you have tens of thousands of people who have emailed and called and left reviews and testimonials saying, holy crap, this is the most comfortable thing I've ever worn and or it changed my life, you can't dismiss that. When you research and understand the concept of natural movement, and you look into the research that's been done about footwear, you can't conclude anything other than modern athletic footwear is simply wrong. And what we're doing has a real basis in, there's science backing it up, and there's a basis in reality. If you go back prior to 1972, all footwear looked like ours, totally minimalist. People played basketball in Chuck Taylors and Converse All-Stars. People ran in thinly sold leather shoes. And they weren't getting the kinds of injuries that people get now. You never saw a basketball player trip over the outside edge of his shoe and nearly shatter his ankle because he's an inch off the ground you know, when he hits this major, well, it's called a, a pivot point that puts an unbelievable force and torque through a joint that isn't designed to handle that. So we're onto something that's legit. And that's a really rare thing to have. Lane and I love to say, if you're going to start a business, make sure it changes people's lives because otherwise it's just too damn hard. That's the part that's important to us. The rest of it is, it's not irrelevant, but it's going to be a side effect of us trying to do the right thing and hopefully being incredibly lucky, as we have been up till now, continuing to be incredibly lucky and working our butts off to make the product and the brand and the company live up to its potential.
1: It sounds like maybe like those reviews or those messages we're getting with some of the fuel that helped you keep going.
0: Absolutely. Look, there's nothing I like more than being right and being right. <laughs> um, totally yeah, all. yeah. And being right in the face of multi hundred billion dollars worth of an industry, being up against Nike, Reebok, Adidas, Puma, you know, all those companies and being right. I like it. Again, I no longer have the illusion that they're going to take it lightly. I mean, there are CEOs from billion-dollar companies practically leave the room when I walk in because they don't want to get in the conversation with me. And I get it. So, But what we're doing, again, it's legit. And we've had people who've been in footwear for 40-plus years come up to us and say, you are the only real thing in footwear for the last 50 years. And they're not trying to blow smoke up our butts. We believe it. We see it. There are companies that started doing what we were doing or similar things, and then they got bought by bigger companies who made them change their entire mission, and they lost their way from our perspective. There are competitors of ours who wear our shoes because they believe in what we're doing. Is it worth it? History is going to give you the answer for that. Again, even if I'm sitting on a pile of money, I won't be able to answer that question.
1: Yeah. And I'll get to that again. Cause it was something we discussed in the pre interview. So that's the reason I was asking. But before we get touch on that again, how do you keep your like team motivated? I mean, do you share those types of messages? Cause oh, yeah. even for me personally, like, oh, yeah. okay, I didn't make any money doing the podcast over the first year, but now I'm starting to get more and more messages and it's just like. Okay, I didn't get any messages probably in the first six or, you know, nine months. And you're like, why am I doing this kind of, you know, what's the point? I'm spending money doing this. I'm trying to help, but I didn't have those inspirational messages. But now I started to get them and I share them with my team of audio editors and stuff. And it seems like that's way more fuel for them than anything.
0: Everybody who works here believes in our mission. They're totally on board.
1: And do you share them? Oh, yeah. How do you keep them motivated? Because I understand trying to get them on board, but I guess sometimes that motivation factor, or especially in the early years when you're trying to deal with that, and maybe don't have as much money coming in.
0: Again, we've grown really quickly. We're not, you know, massively quickly, but in 2014, again, this is public info. We were 772 thousand in sales. A year later, we were 1.44 million. A year later, we were 2.74. I think last year, 5.53. So just seeing the growth is very inspirational for people going from, you know, a dozen people to 30 people in 18 months. That's kind of gets them going, oh, there's an actual thing here. And again, just hearing those testimonials and reports, those phone calls, those emails, that really helps. And they've all had their own experience. I mean, everyone walks around wearing our shoes, not because they've drunk the Kool-Aid, but because they've had the same kind of like, wow, this is, I never knew that my feet could feel this good experience.
1: And speaking of experience, how about Shark Tank? How about Shark Tank? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so I did the research and then I came across I'm like, oh, I didn't know he was on Shark Tank. We hadn't mentioned it before, but I'm just curious about, obviously I watched the clip of it, but your whole experience being on there, if that helped with sales, just walk us through that.
0: Well, I'll cut to the end of that. <laughs> the week following the show, we did about three months worth of sales. Now to highlight the growth factor, what we did in three months or you know, what was three months then is now what we do in about four days. Things have evolved quite a bit. And the show was great for us. For people who haven't watched it, you can watch it at zeroshoes.com slash shark tank. We turned down a $400,000 offer from Kevin. He wanted half the company, which was just patently absurd. And what you see when you watch the show, it's fascinating. We were in the tank for about 45 minutes. And what you see is the nine minutes that it got cut down to. Every objection that you hear, we had an answer that massively hit it out of the park. At one point, Robert says, You don't see this on the show. He says, what do you think about the competition? Like those five toe shoes. I said, oh, there's creating a wave of awareness and we're surfing on that wave. And he jumps out of his chair and yells, you have a perfect answer for every question. And Lena and I just looked at him kind of incredulously and said, this is our business. So it was totally surreal to be on the show. And what looks like a conversation when you watch the show is anything but you're in the tank. As Lena likes to point out, it's not a business show that happens to be on television. It's a television show that's loosely about business. And so the sharks are just trying to make good TV. They're trying to argue with each other and get more coverage than the other and make a better deal than the other and try and catch you. Like at one point, I think Cuban said, wait a minute, you guys are married? And we said, yeah. They said, but you said that she's the owner. It's like, yeah. What happened there? (laughs) (laughs) No big deal. It was an asset protection strategy. We wanted to make sure that nobody could get through. I was involved in a crazy lawsuit with one of those scriptware programmers that I hired and they were being unscrupulous. We wanted to keep this company safe from that. It's like, no, all right whatever. So there was a lot of moments like, Kevin once said, based on your earnings and what you're valuing the company at, what you're expecting me to wait 20 years to get my money back. And I said, oh, Kevin, you know that revenue and earnings are asymmetric in a company growing this fast. And he's like, yeah, okay, that's true. So, <laughs> so oh, I got to use that. Yeah. Or Damon, I mean, it starts, Damon says, this is rubber and string. And I said, Damon, you of all people know that a brand is more than the components of the product. And as he slumps in his chair, Cuban points at him and goes, perfect answer, but you never see any of that.
1: Oh, yeah, they didn't show any of that. I do remember that's all I kept whining about was
0: yeah. rubber and string. And he could. And yeah. And Lena's response is it's not just rubber and string, it's a revolution, <laughs> which was a brilliant answer. They don't show how badly and how much Barbara hated me.
1: She... <laughs> oh, yeah, that was messed up.
0: You know, her opening line to me was I hated you from the moment you walked out here.
1: <laughs> yeah. You <laughs> remind me of
0: my ex husband. She just went off. She's like, Delena, how can you be married to him? What's wrong with you that you're with him? Why is he like this? And Lena was just like, so shell-shocked. She's, he's not always like this, (laughs) which I kind of looked at her like, really, that's the best you could do? What happened to, you know, he's really smart and funny and I love him, but eh, whatever. That was crazy. And what I immediately realized though, is that I couldn't be glib. The appropriate response, if we weren't on the show to that, you look like my ex-husband, so I hated you from the moment you walked out here, would have been the ex-husband who gave you the money that you used to turn that into a company that you sold for 60 million. I'm okay with that. Yeah, exactly. What I did the night of the show, I tweeted and I said to her, you should have invested in us. I would have used some of that money for plastic surgery.
1: Oh, <laughs> I know. Cause she came out firing against you like right away. And there's like nothing you can do. Like if someone automatically doesn't like you, because yeah, you I don't do? know if it's cause you look like your ex or if yeah. you act oh, yeah. like it, but.
0: And that's why when she said that they cut to me and I'm laughing. Cause like how am I much respond to that. Yeah. But you know, the thing that was disappointing was that we really wanted to get a deal with her in particular, because at the time she was the only shark who was working with the companies that she invested in. She was retired and she's a brilliant marketer. So we were really hoping that she was gonna get it. And unfortunately she didn't and didn't like me, so be it.
1: Yeah, and again, some things you can't change with dealing with people, especially when they come out like that. Yeah, I would've just laughed and said, okay, we're not taking a deal from you. So, yeah. well, up till today, like what do you see for the future of Zero Shoes?
0: In the same way that people currently think of natural food as the obvious healthy, better choice, we want people to understand and think of natural movement in that same way. And we wanna be the preeminent brand for that. So we're continuing to expand our product line give people shoes and sandals they can wear for any activity, any time of the day, and trying to really get the word out that when you get out of big, thick, padded, motion-controlled footwear and let your feet work naturally, it's really a life-changing event. And everything we're doing is just built around that mission.
1: And I had said, was it worth it earlier on? And I know we kind of lightly discussed this on the pre-interview, but if someone was looking to get into entrepreneurship, like your advice for them, that's the reason I was asking about that.
0: I always answer this question the same way, get a government job with a pension. And I say that only half in jest. I'm 56 right now, and I have friends who are retiring from their government jobs with pensions. And boy, most of them literally don't know how to spend all the money they're getting. So it's incredible to watch. It's like the way Lane and I were when we were retired, but they're doing it with more money than we had. But I say it in part because if you're a quote, real entrepreneur, there's nothing I could say to you that would be useful, really. Nothing I could do to talk you out of your dumb idea. And it may be a dumb idea. You're going to do whatever you're going to do. The only thing I would say is don't wait, just get started. Because the idea that you can know in advance what it's going to be like is ridiculous. The idea that you need to feel confident is absurd. You just need to get in and roll up your sleeves and roll with the punches. The other reason I say it is if my saying get a government job with a pension makes you go, hmm, then you should probably get a government job with a pension because this is not for the faint of heart. There's no guarantees. I met a guy the other day who started and successfully exited three companies. And I said, you know that you're like a unicorn on top of the tip of a unicorn's horn, because that is just so unusual that you were that successful that many times. Typically, doing it well once, most people don't do it well a second time. And most people don't do it well the first time. So it's a tricky one. I'm thinking back, actually, early on, Lena was kind of upset saying, I feel like I don't know what I'm doing. I said, no one knows what they're doing. We're just making it up as we go every day there's something new that shows up that no one has ever dealt with before our job is to just figure it out what like, oh well, I can do that <laughs> so, so that's what we do the idea that you know you need to emulate someone or be some way or think some way blah 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 if you're going to do it just do it cross your fingers and pay attention to the risk side not the reward side you can control risk you can't control upside
1: I like the way you said that and last question What's the one question that you wish someone would ask you, but they never do?
0: Well, they actually do ask me. They say things Are you <laughs> nuts. Hmm, that's a really interesting question. What's the one one they ask that they should, but they don't?
1: You really wish someone would ask you a question. It could be personal or business oriented.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm leaning in the both direction. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. I think we already covered it actually, because people did used to ask me this. When we were retired, they would say, what do you know about sort of money and success that we need to know? And the answer is that both of them are misunderstood. That success is not a word that I use at all. I have no frame of reference for it. The idea that what I do is I point people back to this book called Stumbling on Happiness by Daniel Gilbert from Harvard. And the premise of the book is, and there's a TED talk that he did as well. You can see that it's great. And the gist of it is that every thought we have, Is trying to predict what will make us happy in the future. And the problem is that we forget how bad we are at doing that prediction. And then it's even worse that we forget that we forget. And even worse, we think that we're special, that if we interviewed a million people who all got the thing that we thought would make us happy, and we found out that it didn't make them happier than we are currently, we'd still think, yeah, but if I got it. (laughs) Right. And so similar to understanding what enough is, is that neither lena nor i believe that some imagined future is what we need to be happy that doesn't mean we're happy all the time i mean we're frustrated a lot of the time doesn't mean i don't want to kill people who are driving 45 in the 55 zone in front of me on the one road that gets to my house it's just that we're not doing it with the illusion that our life is going to be magically transformed at some point when something that we've been fantasizing happens and In fact, Gilbert says in the book, the secret to happiness is going out and finding all these people who've gotten what you think you need to be happy and finding out they're not happier than you are. And the reason that's the secret to happiness is that you eventually stop believing that thought when it naturally arises in your mind. You hear it and you go, oh yeah, it's that one again. And you just don't pay attention. And that's really, really liberating. And so that's a really big one. And the other one is that money is just agreement. And if you're not getting what you want, you can go straight for the agreement instead of for the money. So as a business example to that, I approached a major publishing company and I said, look, we're a perfect product for your magazines, but I don't have the money to advertise in your magazines. But if you're the kind of person that wants to get interesting data on internet marketing experiments, I'm your guy. And they called me a week later and said, great, let's do some advertising where we only get paid based on the performance of the ads because we just want the data. And that has made me and saved me many, many, many tens of thousands of dollars. I've given that same pitch to many other companies and they just literally don't even get it. But I went for the agreement, not for the money. And I found someone who said yes. So that's another thing is money is always a proxy for agreement. There's always other ways of getting to the agreement. And those are the only couple things I can think of.
1: Thank you for spending the last hour plus walking us down your story. I think there's plenty of stuff for everyone to learn from, other than obviously the last two points. And if someone wanted to say, like, thank you for doing the interview, is there a best way for them to reach out to you?
0: $100 bill, write your name and address, send it to <laughs> <laughs> Just an <in> agreement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that too. You know, you can find my info all over our website, or even if you just email or use the contact form on our site, it'll eventually get to me. We're all very transparent and easily findable.
1: Well, thank you for doing the interview, Stephen. A pleasure. Thank you.
0: Okay, uh, first off, you give me a headache. I don't know why. You remind me of my first husband. You're a little shorter, but there's a similarity. And there's two things driving me crazy. One is it's a black sole, which is hot. Secondly, it's got a knot on the bottom. I would think it would be uncomfortable and that's a liability, right? So I'm not crazy about the product, I have to be honest. I'm out. Okay, there are no other sharks here, correct? There's just you, me, Lena, the rubber, and the string. What are you going to do? I'm going to give you $400,000 for 50% of this company. That's an offer we're not willing to take at this time. Very well, you're dead to me. Run out of here from bare feet. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, guys. Thank you, Thank you for your time. Stress, guys. <laughs> Thanks. Now that we're dead to Kevin, we're going to have to show him that he made the wrong decision. We have so many people who love our product and have experienced real benefits from it. We know that this is something that there's a real market for, and we're just going to continue to do what we do.
1: Wait, 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 hold on. Before you go, I'm sure you know by now we have plenty of Patreon episodes to fill your passion bucket up with more business interviews. So check that out. Just go to millionaire-interviews.com forward slash Patreon.